Today is Resurrection Sunday. It's the day of the Holy Week where we commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we enjoy this as a long holiday, but let's set aside everything for a moment to carefully consider the resurrection and your life. Why? Because there's no Christianity if there's no resurrection. Everything falls apart. But if Christ really rose from the dead, then that changes everything and it should change your life. So let's take a quick look at what the Apostle Paul has to say about the resurrection in his letter to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Now, in the rest of this chapter, Paul goes on to talk more about the resurrection, its certainty, its significance for us. But there's enough in this passage to help us think and recenter ourselves this Resurrection Sunday. So what does it talk about? There's three things about the resurrection here. It talks about the universal importance, the historical evidence, and a personal experience for those in Christ. So first of all, let's talk about the universal importance because Paul says this is of first importance. It's incredibly important. Nothing in your life could be more important than answering the question of whether Christ rose from the dead. And what are the implications? Now, you may not believe all this, or you're not sure what to believe about all this, but you can at least agree with Paul that this question is of first importance. Because who is Jesus Christ? Who's he? W.E.H. Lackey, who's a distinguished historian, and as far as I know, he's a self-professed skeptic. Here's what he has to say about Jesus Christ. The character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive in its practice and has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. So here's a non-Christian, a, a distinguished historian, who not only says that Jesus was a real historical person, but that his life and his influence were so colossal that it's hard to even imagine what the world would be like without him. He literally changed the course of history. But see, Jesus is more than that because he claimed to be the Son of God. 
He said he would die and yet live again. Now, that means if Jesus remains dead, then everything else he said is garbage. Why bother with him? Clearly, he's just a madman or perhaps the greatest con man. But if Christ really rose from the dead, then that changes everything. Because that's the ultimate proof. That's the ultimate vindication. And that should change everything. And it should change you. Now you may say, well, clearly, that's impossible. People don't get up from the dead. That will never be possible. Well, wait a second. You're starting to think about philosophy. You have a philosophical presupposition that people can't rise up from the dead. It's impossible. It will never happen. That's a philosophical presupposition. That's philosophy. What we're talking about is history. What happened after Jesus was crucified and died? What happened? What happened so that hundreds of Orthodox Jews, who would be the last people on earth to believe that a man is a god, that a man resurrected from the dead, they would be the last people to believe. And yet, what happened so that they started to say that Jesus is the risen Lord and Savior. What happened? What's the historical explanation? See, regardless of how you may feel about that or what you think about it, don't you think you at least owe it to yourself to understand the truth surrounding such an important figure in history, Jesus Christ? Paul is absolutely right in saying this is of first importance. Nothing can be more important than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, even for believers, this is incredibly important. Remember, who is Paul talking to here? He's talking to the Corinthian believers. Now, apparently some of them started to say that there was no resurrection of the body. You know, they're saying maybe this is it. When you die, that's the end. You don't get up again with a new body and live on. Now, today we Christians know better. We know there's a resurrection. We, we think that's a silly mistake. But let me ask you, why then are you afraid? Why do you toss and turn at night, unable to sleep, worrying, anxious, overthinking? Why? It's because, practically speaking, we're still living as if this life is all there is. We, you're always thinking about money, as if that's the only wealth you have. It's in this world. You're still always addicted to the pleasures of this life because all the glory and happiness that you see is here. It's in this life. You're still obsessed with chasing greatness in this world because you see that the only glory you have is in this life. In other words, you're still living as if this life is all there is. You're in the same boat as the Corinthian believers. You don't really know yet about your future resurrection. See, what's our problem? Paul says our problem is that we believe the gospel in vain. Now, that phrase there means that you heard about the gospel, you accepted the gospel, but you didn't really let it sink in. It's one thing to know about the gospel. It's another to taste it, to really be deeply moved and affected by it such that your perspective is changed and your hopes and your fears are transformed. Has it happened for you? Has it moved you? Well, how do we do that? Well, what does Paul do? Paul 
brings them back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, 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 go back and see for yourself that the resurrection of Christ really, really happened. It, it's certain. It really, really happened. And therefore, you can be absolutely confident that the gospel of your salvation, of your resurrection, is just as true. It's just as certain. Because he lives, one day you too shall die and yet live again. See, if you're still constantly gripped by fear and anxiety by the things of this life, here's what you need to do. You need to go back and re-examine the basis of your hope. Go back to the resurrection of Christ. Look at the facts. Look at the evidences. Look at what the scriptures say. Look at what the testimonies say. Let it all argue with you until you're even more convinced that because he lives, one day I shall die and yet live again. So where do we begin doing that? Well, Paul gives us some historical evidences to think about. Paul gives us here an early summary of the Christian teachings surrounding the resurrection. He gives us some historical evidences here, and there's at least three right here. Now, the first that we can see here is the fact of the empty tomb. It says there that Christ was buried and then he was raised. That means the tomb is now empty. It's no long, Jesus is no longer there. Now, think about it. Virtually everyone agrees that Christianity spread like wildfire across the Roman Empire, despite fierce opposition, despite many enemies. You know, all her enemies could put a stop to this movement just by producing the body of Christ. Look at the guy you're worshiping. He's dead. And then immediately, Christianity would be ended right there and then. But they didn't because they couldn't. The tomb is empty. Jesus is no longer in the grave. So there's evidence number one. Now, evidence number two is, Paul says, it's according to the scriptures. The scriptures. Now, the scriptures that they were referring to is the Old Testament. That's what they had at that time. Now, here's what the theologians tell us. They say that in the Old Testament, there are over 300 plus prophecies about the coming Messiah, about the coming Savior that God would send. Now, here's what the theologian, here's what the mathematician tells us. The mathematician tells us that the probability of all 300 plus prophecies converging into one single person, the probabilities there are ridiculously improbable. It's, it's virtually zero. It's, it should be impossible. Put it like this. If someone won the lottery, you'd say, oh wow, what a lucky guy. But if that same person wins the next lottery, and the next, and the next, and the next, you'd start to suspect something. That can't be just a coincidence, right? Somebody must be making things happen here. Well, the mathematician tells us that the probabilities of those prophecies all converging in Christ is even more improbable. It's even more ridiculous. That can't be just a coincidence, right? The most probable reason is someone's making it happen. And Christianity says, yes, God made it happen. 
Now, perhaps you've read the Bible and you're saying, wait, wait, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus go out of his way to deliberately fulfill those scriptures? Then that doesn't count, right? Well, you're absolutely right. Jesus himself said that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. But here's something to think about. All the other Jews also had the scriptures. It's not just Jesus. All of them had it. They all had the same data. They all knew about the prophecies. And yet, none of them seemed to manage to piece it all together. None of them could envision what the Messiah should be and what he should be doing. They couldn't envision it because all the different data was too paradoxical and mysterious. There was a tension there that they couldn't reconcile. For instance, why do the scriptures talk about a king who comes in power to rule in glory and yet at the same time talk about a servant who suffers horrendously? How? Why does the scriptures talk about a person that God sends to rescue his people? And yet at the same time talks about a person smitten by God. How can that be? They couldn't reconcile all that. They couldn't put it all together. And that's why if you look at the Gospels, again and again, Jesus keeps on correcting his disciples for having very wrong, skewed ideas about who the Messiah is and what he does. But here's the interesting thing. When Jesus died and he resurrected and he appeared to the disciples, the disciples started to look back at the scriptures in light of what they saw in Jesus. And they realized and the light bulbs came on. And here's what they must have said. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So this is what the scriptures are saying about. Look at Jesus. He's the king who suffers like a servant. He's the one sent by God to rescue us. And yet, he's crushed by God. It's Jesus. So that's why, so that's how, so that's it. It's all in Jesus. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. And see, if you read through the New Testament, you see all these reflections and realizations that the first Christians had about Jesus in light of the Old Testament. They looked at the Old Testament, and they saw all of it pointing to Jesus Christ. They saw the the patterns of God's promise and God's grace. They saw the themes of sacrifice and atonement and blood and the temple and of the good to come. They saw how God again and again reversed evil into good. And they saw all of that, all those themes and tensions converge and climax into this singular person of Jesus Christ. Now here's my question. If the resurrection was fake, how in the world could the disciples fabricate the most perfect story to resolve the Old Testament? How? They're not highly educated people. In fact, if you read the Gospels, they're not exactly the brightest people. How in the world could the disciples come up with the story that is the most daring, the most brilliant, the most compelling story ever written? that has inspired some of the greatest pieces of art and literature, a story that has moved countless number of men and women across history, across different cultures. How in the world did they come up with that? The real answer is simple. They were telling the truth. Jesus lives. 
and that changed everything. So you have the evidence of the empty tomb, you have the evidence of the scriptures, and lastly, Paul talks about the evidence of the eyewitness accounts. Now in ancient courts, and even until today, eyewitnesses are extremely valuable, right? And the list of eyewitnesses here are fascinating and incredible to say the least. You literally have hundreds of eyewitnesses. You have to understand, scholars say that Paul wrote this letter just 15 to 20 years after the death of Christ. That means many of them are still alive. They're still there. You can round them up, investigate, and interrogate, and cross-examine to see whether they were telling the truth. You can do that. You see, this is not some urban legend yet. This is not some, some folk, folk tale that was handed down. No, the eyewitnesses are alive. You can talk to them. See for yourself. And what makes it even more amazing is the evidence of the changed lives of these eyewitnesses. They were never the same again after they claimed to saw Christ alive. I mean, for example, look at, look at the first one. Jesus appeared to Cephas. That's another name for Peter. And then Jesus appeared to the twelve. So this is the group of the closest disciples of Jesus Christ, right? When Jesus was arrested to be crucified, where were they? They all fled. They disappeared. They abandoned Christ. They betrayed him. And when Jesus was dead, where were they? They locked themselves inside a room, hiding, confused, terrified. But some days later, they're out in the streets, boldly proclaiming that Jesus is the risen Lord and Savior. What happened in between? Jesus lived again. They saw Christ risen. What made this group of ragtag rag group of failed followers suddenly into fearless martyrs? Jesus lives. And that changed everything. And it should change your life. Or perhaps the best example here is the eyewitness account of Paul himself. Who's Paul? Paul's the persecutor. He's the one hunting down Christians happily. But then suddenly, almost overnight, Paul suddenly starts to proclaim Jesus as Lord. What happened? What happened in between? He saw the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. And that changed everything. What did Paul gain by doing that? Why did the persecutor become the persecuted. He, he gained nothing. He lost his wealth. He lost his comfort. He lost his respect in society. He lost all that. He was whipped. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He, he suffered through all kinds of things for the name of Christ. And history tells us Paul never ever recanted on Christ. He never ever backed down on saying Jesus is alive and he's the Lord of Lords. Because Jesus lives, everything changes, and so should your life. Now perhaps you're, you're, you don't really believe all this, or you're not sure what to believe about all this. And maybe you're thinking, you know, well, if Jesus appeared to me, then I'll believe. I'll believe if Jesus appears to me also. You know what Paul would say to you? Paul, who had this Damascus experience of Jesus appearing to him, you know what he would say to you? 
he would say the same things. He would say and point to you the empty tomb, the scriptures, the eyewitnesses. You know why? You want Jesus to appear to you? Well, Jesus has already appeared in history. You want evidence? You want proofs? He's left you all sorts of things. He's done all sorts of signs and miracles to prove who He is. He's left you the tomb, the scriptures, the eyewitnesses. See, Paul would tell you to seek the truth, to look at the evidences, to follow it where it's pointing you, and you'll find that Jesus has been there all along, knocking at the doors of your heart. Now, perhaps you're a Christian, and you're also thinking, well, if only Jesus would appear to me like that, well, then my faith would be strengthened. I won't have to struggle this much. My friend, God has not left himself without testimony. You have the scriptures. He's given you the Spirit of God, who is in you, who's speaking to you, and who can make the truth just as real in your heart as they had it. It's right there. Seek the truth and you'll find yourself being driven deeper and deeper into Christ. My experience has been that the more I seek the truth, and nothing but the truth, unvarnished, uncompromised, the more I do that, the more I know that my Savior lives, that my faith is true, that my hope is real and that His grace is here. As the song goes, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. See, that's why Paul goes on to talk about a personal experience of what are the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, Paul here is talking to believers, assuring them of their resurrection. You have a hope. You have a certain kind of hope. See, there's a beautiful part there where Paul talks about the believers who have passed away. He says, they have fallen asleep. Such a beautiful way to put it. You know what it means? It means one day, the believers who have died will also open their eyes again. And they're going to shake off death as if nothing really happened, as if they were just waking up from a dream. That's the hope we have, that those who follow Jesus are following Him through the passage of death and out into the fields of life, everlasting life. That's the hope we have. Do you know that hope? Dr. Tim Keller makes this great observation. He says that in the Bible, it's okay to be angry at death. Jesus was very angry at the tomb of Lazarus, right? So if you see death coming for you, you see death coming for your loved ones, it's okay to be angry at death. But never be afraid. Don't be afraid. Jesus has gone through it and he's come out. He's overcome the grave. And so shall you one day. And see, I'll use the same illustration he used. He talks about the, what Dr. Donald Grain Barnhouse shared. And this is a true story. He's a pastor and he's, he's driving his family to the funeral of his wife. And on the way, he's trying to think of a way to talk about the death of their mother to 
their children. And as they were on their way, a big truck passed by their car. And of course, the shadow of the truck also passed by them. Now, Dr. Barnhouse turned and said to his daughter, Honey, would you rather hit would you rather be hit by the truck or by the shadow of the truck? And the daughter said, the shadow. And he said, well, Jesus was hit by the truck of death. So that, so that mommy only has to go through the shadow of death. Do you know that hope? Do you have that kind of hope? That because Jesus has been crushed by the truck of death, we will only have the shadow of death pass over us and back into life. That means our hope in Christ is that death is not death. It's not the end of all things. No, death is just a passageway out into the open fields of life, into the, our real life, into a better life, into the real home that we have always longed for. As someone once said, you know, death used to be an executioner, but now death is just a doorman to your real home. See, if you have that kind of hope, then why be anxious? Why, why, why keep worrying and be afraid of things in this life? Why? I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? Death? Death, death used to be the worst thing that can happen to you. But what does death do? Death can now only bring you closer to the loving presence of your Savior. That's all it can do. And after all that, you'll be brought back to life. That's the kind of hope we have. It's certain. And because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Now let me just say one last thing about this hope that Jesus offers us. Notice, Paul gives us a list of the eyewitnesses. And the first one he talks about is Peter, and the last one is Paul. Now I'm sure the experiences of everyone else in this list is practically the same. But let me just highlight the, these two people. On the one hand, you have Peter. What did Peter do? Peter denied Jesus three times at his darkest hour. When it mo most mattered, Peter denied Christ three times. And when Peter realized what he had done, he went away weeping because he had sinned greatly. He had acted horribly. Now, when Jesus died and he was resurrected and he appeared to Peter, what did Jesus say to him? Three times also, Jesus asked Peter, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And every time Peter said, yes, Lord, Jesus said, feed my sheep. In other words, Jesus was giving Peter the responsibility, the responsibility to shepherd his people. He was instating Peter to spiritual leadership. Did Peter earn this? Was Peter worthy? Did Peter do anything amazing lately to make up for all the horrible things he've done? No, nothing. It was grace. He did not deserve this, but Jesus gives it anyway. Because the kind of hope that Jesus offers all of us is purely by grace. 
You don't have to earn this. You don't have to be worthy because Jesus was worthy. He has earned it. He's died the death we should have died. He was crushed by death so that the shadow only has to pass by us. Or again, if you look at Paul, who was Paul? The persecutor, the one who killed his people. But what does Jesus say about Paul? He says, this guy is my chosen instrument and he's going to carry my name out to the Gentiles, out to kings. He's going to represent me to the wider world. Did Paul earn this privilege? Was he worthy? Did he do anything amazing lately to make up for all his murders? No, nothing. It was grace and grace alone. And that's the kind of hope that Jesus offers everyone today. He's promising that hope to anyone purely by grace. We don't have to earn this. He has earned it. We don't have to die anymore, the the death that he died. He is calling all people to repent and to come to him because he's willing to forgive anyone and give them the hope that because he lives, you too shall one day die and yet live forevermore. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And anyone who follows him, follows him into the passage of death and into life, life, life. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you have not left us without hope, without God in this world. You have sent Jesus Christ to live, to eat, to breathe among people, among sinners, and to die for sinners such as me. Lord, we thank you for the gift that you have given us through Christ. Help us, Lord, come to terms and firmly, certainly believe that our Savior lives and that one day we shall as well. Help us, Lord, face our fears and our anxieties and our worries with that certainty of life beyond this life so that we may face tomorrow so that all fear may be gone in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Make these truths real to our hearts, to our lives, to our relationships. Thank you, Father. We praise you, Lord, as we remember the death and resurrection of your Son. We are grateful. We praise you. We love you, Father. All glory be to your name. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining our online worship this Resurrection Sunday. I hope you had a meaningful Holy Week and God bless you this coming week.